you know, if you're an entrepreneur or you have these ideas and you've got to get them out and get them on paper and yeah. get them moving, that takes full concentration and, and, and um, a lot of time. So, you found a way. That's what I'm hearing you, you say. You gotta find, you've got to find a way and you've got to create opportunity if the opportunity doesn't come to you. Fierce Lab is a podcast series for women. It's powered by the Tara Wilson Agency, the agency that gets women. It's a space to focus on our whole selves, from mental health to career development to financial intelligence. To be fierce is to be confident, capable, and strong. Fierce Lab offers inspiration, tools, and community. It's where we can explore new ideas and encourage discovery. Here, trying something new is celebrated. No one has it all figured out, but together, we can step fiercely into what's next. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Fierce Lab. I am Tara Wilson, your host and founder of Fierce Lab. And today we have an exciting conversation. We are talking with Stephanie Hall. You may know Stephanie if you know Estelle Colored Glass. She is the founder and CEO of this luxury brand of hand-blown colored glass. Stephanie started her career in South Carolina as an attorney and then shifted over to an entrepreneur. So today our conversation is going to center around risk-taking and career development. And I am thrilled to get into this. Hi, Stephanie. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, I'm so glad that you could join me. So I want to kind of start by talking about the fact that prior to becoming an entrepreneur, stepping out and taking that risk, you were an attorney. And that seems like quite a leap to go from law to being an entrepreneur of hand-blown glass. So can we talk about what that stage of your career was like and then how you decided one day to make that shift? Yeah, absolutely. So since middle school, I wanted to um, be an attorney. And so I was on that trajectory. I went to the University of South Carolina. And um, from there, I went to the University of North Carolina for law school straight after graduating and went to practice. Um, I did two appellate judicial clerkships and um, and then to private practice. Um, I, for, so I was in the field of law for 10 years. I really recognized early on that I was more inclined to, I was, I was, I'm a writer. I love to read. So it was fine. I really enjoyed my clerkships. And then I, when I got to private practice, it was, you know, you're kind of marginalized in these different environments and you're not what you necessarily, there's probably a disconnect with what your reality is day to day versus what you have in your mind and how it's going to be. It wasn't exactly what I thought it would be. Mm -hmm. I was not, didn't have as much passion as I thought I had for it. Mm -hmm. And I was more, I realized I was more inclined to business. I was reading mm -hmm. business books. I was I'm going straight to the business sections in you know, the New York times every morning, all newspapers I read. I was interested in that world more so than law. And so when I started a family and had the title of a mother and I was working 75 hours as an attorney, mm. I just decided that that was not the lifestyle that I wanted. I think that's a really interesting point to make. And I appreciate your candor on that. You know, 
25% of our listeners are young women out of college embarking on their first career. They haven't quite made that second change. And I think that what your point is, is something important to share with them that sometimes you can you can spend all of this time on your education and, and the money that it requires to educate yourself and you get out into the real world and you start practicing, whether it's law or anything else, and you start applying to your skill sets and you find it's just not what it, you thought it was cracked up to be. Yeah, I, I think like, you know, you, you have the reality of it. Of For me, you know, being a African-American female, being African-American and a female in these uh, mostly high-strung, assertive environments with, you know, 95% males, mm-hmm. white males, um, it's, it's, you know, you are marginalized. Mm-hmm. And what you're working on is probably not what other people are working on. It's just not what you thought it would be. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that's just the reality of it. I always say, of course, like if anybody wants to go to law school and, and they're, you know, they're a good writer and and you want and you're vocal and, and good advocate, I mean go and, and do it. You know, they tell you in law school, you can take your law degree and do anything you want to do with it. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, hey, this is that's good to know. I can fall into other fields. You know, you can take your the skills that you that you've learned and transferred to really you can Paired them with anybody at work. I did come to the point where I needed to be honest with myself. And quite frankly, I was not fearful to make the transition because I was an absentee owner of a, um, a business, an event rental business for a number of years. You know, I was very engaged with that, but I did it. I started out with still the safety net of still having my job as a lawyer. And that was my way of of just testing the waters and getting out of like, okay, this is mm-hmm. this is what I prepared for all this time, but what if I don't want to continue to do this? That's another great point. You had a safety net. You knew that, okay, if this isn't where I'm going to stay in my career, what could be alternate paths? I've got a great degree. Having that foundation of being an attorney with a law degree allows you to pivot and go in a lot of different directions. And so you you said you started a, a second business. You were the absentee owner of that. And um, what time frame are we talking about here? What- well, I practiced for 10 years. Okay. And so about halfway in there, I was, I was an absentee owner, you know, starting a business from the start, from ground up. And um, one thing I will say too is like, sometimes I was, I, if I would have been well-received in, in that field and not marginalized, mm-hmm. then- and it lived up to my expectations, I probably would have not even been looking elsewhere. But when you go into some of these environments, then you're rejected. Sure. So um, you have no choice but to say, well, am I going to stay here and be rejected? Or am I going to continue to be marginalized? Or am I going to go into a, create a space of my, if there's no seat at the table for me, am I going to create my own table and sit myself at my own table? I like that. I think those are some great points to make and you start to filter it through, okay, if I'm not going to be accepted, if I'm continuing to be marginalized and I'm not getting a seat at this table, then I'm going to make my own table. And I think that's great advice for women who might be experiencing what you experienced is that you have to evaluate it that way. Well, I, I think you have to stand up for yourself, definitely advocate for yourself and to find allies if you can live with it, go for it. Because either, you know, I mean, if I if I would have stayed, I probably would have been okay. I mean, I never felt, uh, nobody pushed me out. Sure. I, you know, I left voluntarily. 
So that's the thing. You can stay and hold your own. I would have done fine holding my own. Just always on your terms. You sure. know, um, Let's be clear. You're talking about your rental business. This is even yeah, rental free yeah, yeah. Estelle colored glass. Yes. We built this, this business up from the ground. Uh, we bu- really built a debt-free business. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and so when I got to the point where I, this is built, I want to do something else, not something I can put my imprint on. Sure. So I, I wanted, so I started working on Estelle. Well, and, and let's pause right there because I heard you say, when I heard you speak last summer, that you recognized a gap in the market. That was part of what moved you forward with the glass companies. You were looking for something and couldn't find it. Absolutely. That's what happened. We had a house built here in South Carolina and I was looking, I was thinking forever collections. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to curate forever collections. And one collection I wanted to do was color glass mm-hmm. for entertaining. And um, I just remembered all my, um, you know, I always had the memory of the antiquing trips with my grandmother, the shopping trips. And I just, uh, th- these pieces had a fondness in my memory. And, and I just wanted some pieces for my own home. And I, when I couldn't find them on the, I just, I discovered that I could only really buy them on the secondary market. Mm-hmm. And that that's when the light bulb went off. Okay. This is, this is perhaps a viable business concept because when I started looking, I thought, that there was, there's got to be a brand like the one I built out there. Uh-huh. I've just got to find it. Someone who's modernized these pieces has a, um, a, a really um, expansive collection that I can build on. Mm-hmm. You know, I can just buy one set and then buy more sets. And, and, and it have didn't exist. Nice, yeah, it didn't exist. And the great thing about your event rental business and then this idea about starting the glass company is you knew personally, you wanted the colored glass, but then you also had a group of customers that you could go to and test the concept with them, right? You were able to ask them. Well, well, initially I thought we could rent the glass out and, and it wouldn't be a super big hit because we're near Charleston, which is a very popular Charles wedding destination. So mm-hmm. that's why event rental business did so well. But what we really found was that it was it's more lucrative for us to sell our glass versus renting it. Okay. It's such, there's such delicate pieces until it didn't pan out. But we do do specialty rentals or special specialty loans with um, certain uh, wedding planners. But our glass is so um, in demand until we will have wedding planners just buy it for a wedding. So they can do. Um, so, so it has been a really good fit for weddings. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done well in that market, and particularly, what, but it's, you know, for us as a business model, it was more lucrative for us to um, sell it direct to consumer and wholesale and not get in the rental, rental um, business of it. Okay. So I asked the Fierce Lab community to send in some questions. I mentioned to you before we started recording that lots of women in the Fierce Lab community are big fans of your product and they were excited to hear that we were getting to talk today. So I have some entrepreneurial type questions and we'll definitely make sure we lean into the risk taking, but I also want to be sure we get to the questions that our community has asked. So um, when, when you talk about wholesale and direct to consumer. One asked, how did you decide which avenue to pursue there? And what I'm hearing you say is you, you have both, you have both wholesale and direct yeah, to consumer. We do. We do. And uh, honestly, um, so we started selling, we, we introduced our products in October of 2019. And so the following in March, whenever the pandemic hit, 
that like that March, March we 2020. Were going to, mm-hmm. Yeah, 2020. We were going to a trade show in order to launch our wholesale sort of program or introduce it to buyers. It was a trade show in Chicago and it was going to be like 60,000 buyers there. And the show was canceled because of something called COVID-19. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So we never got to go to a trade show. Okay. But what happened is, you know, um, we started to pick up a lot of steam with our products online and we just had stores come reaching out to us for, for um, to, um, to um, I really didn't know how I'm like, I got to go in front of buyers. Who's going to just ask me for a wholesale account, you know, mm-hmm. but, but it just started happening organically. Stores came to us and asked us to start um, selling them. We started opening up wholesale accounts without, without having gone to a trade show. Uh-huh. Now. Okay. I want to back up because I know that our listeners will be like, wait, 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 how did we even get there? Especially our our friends that are there developing products as well. So in October of 19, you launched the product line. How did people start hearing about your company and about your product? How did you even get it out there and expose individuals to it? Well, you know, of course, we 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 um, started uh, social media outlets and we did reach out to folks, uh, media, media, like, you know, magazines sure. and, and anybody who um, would, that, out, that was out there, you know, actually I spent, a, I remember specifically spending a day in Barnes and Nobles and um, just going through all them, pulling down all the magazines that were applicable and just looking for the editors and, and anybody whose email address and uh-huh. sending them information about our brand, new brand. Oh, I um, love that. I hate yeah. to interrupt you, but I think that's something really good to point out is that to get press, it doesn't always require that you have this big press engine behind you. You literally went to Barnes & Noble, pulled magazines out, looked at the masthead, and started identifying who in the magazine is going to write about my type of product. Oh, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And were you emailing them and sending oh, yeah, them product? Emailing, and, emailing and, and finding them on social media and inboxing them, DMing them. Uh-huh. And, um, and, you know, influencers. I did all all of that for um, several months. And, you know, we did have, like, for instance, well, and then we had, a, we leveraged a couple of relationships we, in terms of local media outlets that we dealt with before the event rentals. This is how, let me just tell you the domino effect. So, We'd been published a number of times by our event rental company in Charleston Wedding Magazine. So mm-hmm. they periodically would reach out to us and say, do you have anything new? I said, well, I'm about to start this color glass company. We're doing a photo shoot next week. And they said, oh, you know, tell us more, tell us more. So I send them a couple of snapshots. And then they said, well, you know, we're going to feature in, in the magazine. So that was our first print magazine. Mm-hmm. But that was a leveraged relationship. Sure. And then, you know, that magazine is very popular around the country. Okay. So that gave us, you know, a little bit of exposure because, um, you know, all the other magazines probably get that copy. So they, you know, they, they knew a little bit about us. And then, but it was a local influencer that like had over a million followers. So she posted us in her stories saying, here's this new brand that's, you know, local to Charleston. And, and of course I knew about her. So I had probably sent her some information about her. I had reached out to all of the local influencers who who are very happy to help, you know, local new brands. So what happened from there is she just posted us in her stories. And then from there, Instagram reached out to us for a special effort they were doing. Um, They have a special Instagram account called Instagram Shop. And what they did was they reached out to us and said, well, we've got someone coming down to do stories in your area. 
and uh, we'd like to to come and film you and, mm. and talk to you in person. And, and I th- I thought it was like some type of like there's got to be money. You want me to spend some right. money on this? They're gonna send somebody down from New York, and I'm like, and, and, and you know, it's from Instagram, and I'm like, there's no what's going on. You know, I'm like, <laughs> they're gonna make me pay. Realize? I really didn't believe it for a long time. Uh-huh. And and they said, you know, we're gonna be there in Charleston. Can we do a feature on your brand? And so when I when they Really, it's, you know, it wasn't a scam or anything or didn't involve $20,000. So, you know, I said, okay, yeah, of course we'll do this. Our first photo shoot was set up like a pop-up store. Okay. And we had rented a, a white space and, and we had the, a lot of shelving, white shelving for weddings, right? Mm-hmm. So we had all these shelving in our rental inventory. So we put all these, these white shelves in this store. When we were moving in that space for the photo shoot that day, folks said, when are you opening the store? What kind of stores is coming? And we we're like, no, we'll be out of here by three o'clock today. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a pop-up store. So Instagram, when they when they contacted us, they said, well, we want to come to your, your store. And I said, well, we don't have a store. I said, well, wait a minute. So I called back that ven- venue and said, I need to rent this space again. Uh-huh. And we we're going to do a, a mini, you know, photo shoot this time. So I put it, brought back to the um, shelves and, and restaged. So when they got there, we had a store for them uh-huh. and um, we'd recreate a store. And did you and- vacate the space again, like say by three o'clock or did you try? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, decide- yeah. No, oh, you yeah. didn't hold off and do like three days of a pop-up store as like, oh, a no, trial no, no, sale. It was never, it was never, no. it was never intended to be that. It was just a photo shoot. Mm-hmm. So they came and they brought their person and, um, and she's been a very big ad- ally for us. They've featured us numerous times mm-hmm. on um, shop by Instagram. And um, so that was an outlet for other people to hear about us. Mm-hmm. And, and this whole time I, I was, I did this whole round of um, months and for about a year, we were sending out complimentary products to influencers. I was going to ask. Them, mm-hmm. Yeah. We said to them, you know, I would DM and say, Hey, this is my new brand. Is this something, if you think this product would resonate with your audience, we'd love to send you a complimentary set. What color would you like? And, and if you like the set, we would have really appreciate it. We didn't, we didn't make that a stipulation. Sure. We just said, if, if you would share it with your audience. Mm-hmm. And so we got a lot of uh, movement with that. You know, a lot of people ignored us too, but about 10% of the people said, yeah, because okay. a lot of people don't even check their DMs. Uh, that but, was going to you know, be my question was yeah. you just slid in their DMs to put that request in front of them. Oh yeah. And oh, I made it, I had to make a comment in there on their, on their post, please check your DM. Um, sure. You know, or something and like so that. about 10% of- responded out of, out of the people that you reached out to. And oh, yeah, but I, but I was very active, um, you know, because you, you, you don't have, you don't have resources. This was, this is really, a, at this, at that stage, it was still really a project I was working on. You know, we were selling, we've gotten a little bit of, we've got a handful of orders for, you know, we started in October, we've got, we got a fair amount of orders for Christmas, a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. not, I was two, three handfuls, and, and then I was hitting the ground, like, really, this was a, um, a very much a on the ground effort, you know, mm-hmm. bootstrapping effort yeah, for yeah. several months. So that's that's how we got our start. And, and we started to get our products out there. And then we had um, pandemic hit. People were at home. They could scroll the Internet. And that's when we really went from, um, you know, we started opening up floodgates and, and getting because a lot people of, were um, shopping during the pandemic and buying okay. things for their home and that sort of thing. OK, that's great information. I want to take it a step back because. So you talked about you wanted to to create this product. You couldn't find it in the marketplace, so you decided to create it. But you don't have any experience with 
hand-blown glass. So how did you bring yourself up to speed? I read that you interviewed multiple companies about manufacturing the glass. I think a lot of women would like to know about that experience because that can be intimidating when you don't have an experience in a field uh, to step out there and take that risk and take on something new. Yeah, absolutely. So well, the first thing I did um, in creating the brand was I had a picture of my grandmother painted by an artist. I had someone do a logo. I just didn't necessarily go in order. I, I still didn't have no glass. I had the logo. I had the um, painting. I'm going to use as a you know the painting as my main logo, and then I had the box logo. Okay. You know with Estelle font and um, I mean beautiful gold imprint on the um, box, and and I started working with a boxing company. And just going through how I wanted the box to look, but I still didn't have anybody to make the glass. And, and I just did, I was doing a lot of research on glass making and my research led me to Poland. And so I did have a contact in Poland because we bought chairs for our event rental business from Poland. So, and, and I, what I had already done too, was I had already had an industrial designer design the cake stand for me. And so I had these designs in hand and I said, so I said to my contact in Poland, I said, I've heard that Poland is a great place to have a glass made, well, you know, really high quality glass. And so the person said, you know, and I said, I've got this um, design. I'm looking for a company to make it. And she gave me the name of the company that I'm working with today. Oh, wow. Um, so, and, and I reached out to them. And, um, and so everybody, I was trying to make these products in the U.S. No one was panning out. Color glass had had its heyday. Mm-hmm. It was just, you know, skeleton crews around, um, but they could not, when I sent them over the, um, what we needed to produce, what we wanted to produce our designs and said, no, we can't do that. Here so, in the U.S. Uh, or was, that was in Poland that they said, no, we can't do that. No, no, no. In the U.S. So um, I was starting to look internationally and specifically in Poland. And um, and, and they said, yes, we can make this cake stand for you. And then they sent me samples. Mm. And I'm like, oh, OK, because, you know, th- this project, you kind of go g- reach a dead end. Yeah. You know, and I, re- I reached a lot of dead ends, but I just kept going. I was relentless. And again, just use leverage my resources and just kept going. And, and then when I got to them, you know, this is a hundred year old company. Um, here I am on, like I said, I have no, no, I'm just starting from scratch, but I didn't let myself look so small. Okay. Um, you know, Tell I me more about that. To, yeah. I didn't know how, I didn't know how to negotiate and I didn't know how to present a, a argument that made us look like we would be a good, a good we could not be ignored. Okay. And all of my correspondence with them was very beefed up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, what do you mean by that? When you say I beefed mean, it was, up? It was very um, a strong argument. I was presenting strong arguments. What I was envisioning, that's what I portrayed on paper. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you know, saw this, your end result. And when you yeah, were asking the manufacturer to to make, you weren't saying, hey, I need 10 samples made. And if I can sell these, then I might order 100 oh, no. more. You Absolutely you were projecting, oh, yeah. I see I, that we're going to be this kind of business. Yeah. And I said to them, I said, you know, our products are going to be sold in luxury um, department stores. Um, you know, I mentioned the Neiman Marcus. I mentioned the, the Sacks. Mm-hmm. I mentioned um, it's going to make a phenomenal um, splash in the mm-hmm. um, wedding industry and, and... Um, gift industry. And I said all these things. And so the company allowed me, they, they made the cake stand. They allowed me to formulate all my colors mm-hmm. and then they started sending me boxes of it. And then eventually I had, you know, enough where I'm like, oh, I got it. I have an inaugural collection I can put out there, yeah. you know? So, so I just kind of, and that was very scary because here I am going to name a brand after my grandmother. And so 
who wants that to fail? Right. So I didn't really tell it. <laughs> I didn't really tell anybody. And I was actually going to do that my initial photo shoot by myself with um, some some guys from my event rental company. Uh-huh. And, and then it got so detailed and it had all these boxes. I'm like, there's no way in the world I'm going to get this done. So I had to ask. And we were busy. We were in our busy season um, with the rental. So I really couldn't take any more of my staff from, from that business. So I had to ask my aunt, mm-hmm. um, my cousin and my mom to come along. on. And this they didn't shoot. know you'd started this business. Named no, after they your didn't grandmother. Really, they didn't really know what I was doing, but they kind of, you know, I'm like, I don't want to even tell them. I really didn't tell them a lot of details. I just like, I need you to come to this location to help me with this. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I need you to come to this location and I yeah, don't want to hear any feedback unless it's positive. That's what I would yeah, say. Exactly. But, you know, I didn't make a plunge. I just really just the money I could have like upgraded my car, the money I could have done X, Y, Z with, I instead Investing. Uh, steered it to this project. And that was my, you know, I was something I was very passionate about. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, one of the things I will say is that a lot of people won't do what I did because I used a lot of discipline to get this project started and, and a lot of self-denial. And even in entrepreneurship does call for that. And, and a lot of people are not going to be in an uncomfortable position. So, so when you um, say a lot of self-denial, what you're meaning is that you denied yourself certain luxuries or other amenities and things that you could have had in your life so that you could afford to put them in these businesses. You made sacrifices. I, mean, so I could... made sacrifices and that was my approach. I mean, and doesn't didn't look like I was doing okay, you know? Right. Um, so, but I was working on this side project, but yeah. I never put my family at, never put my family at risk. I just refocused some things I could have done for my own self indulgence mm-hmm. um, into this business and um and, and just invested it and, and got it done that way. And and that again took a lot of sacrifice. I want to mention we surveyed a group of women from the Fierce Lab community about what's holding them back from reaching their goals. And I, I share this with you because you've clearly gone after your goals. And that group of women that we surveyed, 15% of them said, I haven't been given the opportunity. When I read that, that really surprised me because in my mind, that group of women is turning the power over for their dreams, their goals, and their desires to someone else. Oh, yeah. It doesn't sound like you've done that. No, that's not in my, that's not in my makeup. I have four kids. No, I I was working on this for five years, this SL project for five years, but I found the time. I I tell people all the time, this is when I found the time. I found the time, like if I was really gearing up, let's say building the website, building it out. I did it, scratch a time of a week where I'm staying up from 11 to three o'clock in the morning, Mm -hmm. you know, I still to this day watch zero hours of TV. Mm -hmm. Me too. I'm right yeah, there with you because I'm either I'm reading, I'm researching. Yep. I'm cre- I have um, after I've done dinner and homework and a zillion extracurricular activities. <laughs> I gotta find time to because you're you have your regular job and then and you have another you know if you're an entrepreneur or you have these ideas and you've got to get them out and get them on paper and yeah. get them moving. That takes full concentration and and, and um, a lot of time. So, you found a way. That's what I'm hearing you, you say. You gotta find. You've got to find a way and you've got to create opportunity if the opportunity doesn't come to you. Because when I even when I got to the negotiations, I got samples and everything with the boxes, my box company, which is up in New York and these glass makers in Poland. Mm-hmm. I, they said to me, you know, this leap of, OK, we want to put this into I want to put this into production. They said, well, these are our minimums. 
you know, this we is the box you know, company saying this yeah, to you and the, and the glass makers okay. for that matter. These are our minimums. Because I've got minimum, and I'm like, when they came, the minimums back to me, I said, well, I'm not, you know, I, this is too risky. I'm, I'm not, not going to commit to that. Yeah, I, I can't commit to that. I don't mm-hmm. want to, uh, it just wasn't even a wise decision to sure. commit to that. You know so what I mean? did you negotiate with them? Oh, absolutely. And I, they I, would I, negotiate. With very strong counter offers. You know, they took a chance on me, but I came with strong counter offers. And again, outlook that was very positive and very optimistic. And then they took a chance on me. And I, again, I, I will, and I tell people all the time too, when I talk to entrepreneurs, I say, you know, it's, it's really good to not get a lot of product when you're starting out, because like from, for one, if I would have just went ahead and, and took out, let's say uh, an extra loan or something for the first products we received, our cake stands that we received initially, these were such, I mean, absolutely beautiful, but they almost required white glove service to be delivered because the stems were so thin when we started shipping them, it was like a 50% breakage rate during the um, shipping. Wow. So we had to go back and re-engineer our boxing. We had to get all these things geared up and, and, and that first batch of cake stands really were not even, we couldn't even sell them because of the threat of uh, breaking doing uh, and we, we didn't want to keep having all these cake stands break all around the country and people, you know, say, this company is terrible. The right. stands, you know, <laughs> right. they, they talk um, during the transit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, we had an X number that we had to just get rid of, but we didn't have thousands. I mean, a, a whole, whole ton of them. So I think it's really a smart way to, the smart to start. thing to do is start to start small mm-hmm. and, and then to build out. And, and again, I didn't, I never put my family at risk doing any of this. It mm-hmm. was just, be at risk in my time and investment. Well, so that's, you're talking about your cake stands and the the thin pedestal. That's one challenge. So I'm curious if you've had any challenges with your product around demand, because to your earlier point in 2020, it became apparent women knew about your product. So have you experienced any challenges in that regard? Yeah. And and I'm not, I wasn't very proud of this. We had like a some people waited like up to six months for our products. I, you know, it was not the custom experience I wanted to deliver, but we did sell out of most of all the products that we had on sh- on the shelf going into the pandemic. And there was a wait for us. And then of course there were supply chain issues, et cetera, getting a new product in. And then I was placing smaller order. I had smaller orders in the works. Mm-hmm. It took us months to, to get up to speed with our, you know, to meet the demand. And um, we had this, what what we really created was a passion project product. So people didn't have to have it. It was not essential. Right. So they didn't cancel their orders. And so the, the product could not be found with anyone else. So they, you know, they waited on the product. Sure. So, I mean, that was definitely, and it still poses a challenge for us um, at certain points in terms of um, going out of stock on products and then getting the product in stock and um, having customers wait. You um, made me think of something when you said that, you know, it's not essential and they couldn't get it anywhere else. And so they waited. Have you started to experience any copycat brands? Well, I I think, you know, I was very intentional. And when I started this brand and I spent months working, working on what about us, I wrote all this stuff myself. (laughs) I mean, painstakingly. And so the about us page was something I wrote over like a six month period. I was very clear. My intent was to start a revival of colored glass. And so, of course, with that revival starting, and I have been credited with starting a revival of mm-hmm. colored glass, like even New York Times, you know, they said, you know, we feel like when they did an article, they said, we feel like your company really did put 
colored glass back on the drawing board. So I, I was, but I was very intentional about even using that word revival. I spent so much painstaking time thinking of the word I wanted to use, but I did want people to um, be introduced to colored glass. I did want them to know how it would feel to have events where, you know, like my grandmother used colored glass and, and her a lot hosting a lot. And these things were, these pieces were ingrained in my mind. So mm-hmm. I'm going to introduce colored glass to a whole new set of folks that, that some people it was, it was, these are nostalgic pieces because they remember their aunts and grandmothers that had them. But a new set of people were saying, you know, this just really makes everybody happy. Yeah. And, you know, creates, takes my entertaining to another level. Sure. I want to shift gears. I know that in 2022, you are a Tory Birch Foundation fellow. And I'm curious how being a part of that program has impacted you as an entrepreneur. Well, it's been wonderful to network with a few of the other fellows. I was listed as a Southern Living tastemaker and a few overlap. You know, several people were Tory Birch fellows there. Um, I was just up at the summit, Southern Sea Summit in Sea Island is early this year. A couple of the fellows were there. So it's just nice to really build these relationships with fellow entrepreneurs that are participating in this program. And then we're all going to um, be up in New York this summer. I mean, it's, it's just been a wonderful experience. I and, and I really have, like I said, participated in a couple of these gathering of women entrepreneurs and, and I've been asked to participate. I was just out in um, Los Angeles with um, Crete and Cultivate, yeah. which listed me on their... Um, this year as a, a creative on their 100 list. Mm-hmm. And so that's another whole group of people I get to interact with and to learn from and, you know, just build out from relationships from. So I have been very blessed to have been included on several of these, just not the Tory Birch, but it's just wonderful that, that you can, can tie into these networks and learn from other women and have a safe space to grow your business. And so you would encourage other women entrepreneurs to get involved and getting engaged in in these types of organizations or apply for these types of programs, I would say. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, because all you can do is get a, and then that's, a, that's my approach to anything in life. All you can do is get a yes or no. Right. And like for the Tory Birch Foundation, I applied for a number of years when I had the event rental company only and they did not select me. But when I got SL going and, and they, you know, they, I said, look, every year I'd say I've applied in the past and I'm back again because I feel like this program would benefit me. And they finally selected me. Oh, that's great. And I thank you for sharing that. That was not a, a nugget that I knew. So that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So because, because they only select 50, 50 women across, you know, how uh, vast popularity, like a, a foundation like Tory Burch's foundation they only select 50 women right. each year for each class. So that's, that's a, by, by that mere, that small number, you the chances of getting in are slim to none. Right. You know, you just have to, anything you do, honestly, from my vantage point, you just have to be persistent and um, just, I mean, just be relentless and very determined. And, and honestly, if, if you're just in that mindset of looking for opportunities and taking the time creating the time, you know, 11 o'clock to three o'clock hour, you know, to fill out these applications and get them on the weekends, whenever, mm-hmm. I mean, get, have something really in the works. Um, something's going to come through. It's not going to happen overnight. It's, it's, it's just a journey. It's been a journey. Right. I have been taking copious notes here, scribing lots of things. And I just want to repeat back some of your tips that have really resonated with me. You talked about that you have leveraged your relationships and your resources 
in building a stale glass. You talked about that you've exercised a lot of discipline and made a lot of sacrifices. And I love that you talk about you stay from up from 11 at night till three in the morning to get things done. You don't watch TV. You know, you've really sacrificed things in order to be able to have the time, even and financially you've made sacrifices. So you had the money to invest back in your business. You've embraced a mindset of looking for opportunities, knowing that it's not an overnight success. And I think those are all great key points to share with women. I I love that you've brought those up. And I really appreciate, Stephanie, that you've been willing to sit down with me today and so openly talk about your process of, of establishing Estelle and all that's gone into it. I think it's your story is extremely inspiring and will be very helpful to the women in our community, especially those who are entrepreneurs. Yeah, I mean, I just started with around 225 stores around the country. We're in Nordstrom's. We are in West Elm, Anthropology. And I mean, it's just been been a phenomenal journey and something that happened very quickly with this. But I always tell entrepreneurs, yeah, this happened quickly. But all of the failures and all of the setbacks from my 17 years in the entrepreneur space really culminated into this brand. And I brought those failures and those lessons. And that's why I created this vehicle, um, this brand as a vehicle the way I did. So I think either you're made for it or, or you're not. And, and it's just being honest with yourself. And if, if you're, if it's for you, you will go and pursue it. Mm, I love that. If it's for you, you will go and pursue it. And I appreciate that you brought up, yeah, you're seeing my success here, but don't forget all the hard work that I put in for 17 years leading up to that and bringing those experiences to the table. I I created the business model based on my other failures Mm -hmm. and and, and the product and and something that was going to be very editorial. Um, It's just all those things. Just I'm like, you know, you eliminate what you don't want to do and this is what I can do. And and how can I do that? You know, Mm -hmm. I love it. So, Stephanie, the question I ask every podcast guest at the end of the show is what the word fierce means to them. And I ask that because fierce can have a lot of different connotations for people. And I always want to know what other women are thinking about that word. So for you, what does the word fierce mean? Just basically taking the blows and keeping moving. Just not ever starting a project and not finishing. Being unstoppable. Yeah, unstoppable. You know when to stop a project that's dead and move on to something else, but you'll never be called a quitter. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you pivot, mm-hmm. but you, you, I didn't quit in the middle of it. And that's really the kind of person I am. I won't quit. Start. You know, mm-hmm. you never get to start it. So you start where you are with what you have and with the time you have it and then eliminate the things that are not moving you towards your goals and, and create time for the things that are moving, to, moving you towards your goals. Excellent advice. Excellent. And one point that I want to end on. Thank you so much. 
I have enjoyed getting to talk to you and hearing about your approach to business and how you've built this company. You've certainly inspired me, and I know that you will inspire the women of the Fierce Lab community. Thank you so much for giving me time today. Thank you so much as well. And there's nothing I love enjoying more than talking to other entrepreneurs. You know, I want more to come behind me and do even bigger things than I've done. So I'm really enjoying being in this space. Well, I appreciate you very much. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Fierce Lab. If you did, I would appreciate it if you would subscribe and maybe share it with a friend. You can always follow us on Instagram at Fierce Lab.